I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. We will find ourselves in chapters 21 and 22 today. And the sermon notes in your bulletin will be uh, helpful to you to know where, we're, where we've been, where we're going, and when, of course, we're almost done. So keep, in, keep that in mind as we go. Today, I uh, want you to know in ministry, just a couple add-ons, I suppose, to, to our announcement time. Um, Pastor Kevin is preaching this morning up at Sister Church Central Bible Church, Northtown. And Pastor Ben is down at Grace Community Church, uh, down in the South End. And next Sunday... I'm going to be saying a few words about some adjustments in some areas of ministry that relate to all of that, okay? So that's my teaser. It means you've got to come back next Sunday. You'll come anyway. But I want to say a few words about those areas of ministry and some additional opportunities that God sends our way. So I want you to know that, okay? Now, if you, if you look at your sermon notes, you see there under review that this is our final sermon in our 10-week summer series that has been under the title, We Believe. We have, over the summer, looked at 10 areas of theology. We are usually preaching through Bible books. We did it different this summer and took 10 key areas, core doctrines, and wanted to, wanted to talk together about those with you. So my second little bullet point there, you remember, as, as I've spoken to you, I have given you the cool theological words that some of you are familiar with. You've been to Bible college or seminary, or you just study well and you, you'll learn some of those things. All of them had ology as part of it, uh, the study of. And so here's a kind of a quiz, but there's no prize, and you can't flunk. Uh, but, but over the summer, we have covered elements of the following, okay? Theology proper. Uh, let's see. Christology. Pneumatology, the Holy Spirit. Hamartiology, the study of sin. Uh, soteriology, the study of salvation, eschatology, elements of the resurrection, and so on, Christ's and ours, Uh, soteriology, again, looking at salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, Uh, the inerrancy and authority of Scripture, bibliology, last week, ecclesiology, today returning to another aspect of eschatology. Okay, there you go. So how'd you do? Did you quickly say, oh, I I remember that? Um, Either way is fine. But those are things that we've been looking at. Now, I'm giving you a a, a little snippet from our church doctrinal statement. It's much lengthier than this, but I wanted to affirm with you a couple of things we're going to see in the scriptures today, our authority. So these elements from our doctrinal statement, uh, we believe that the souls of the redeemed, that would be those who are trusting Christ as their savior from sin, the souls of the redeemed are at death, absent from the body and present home with the Lord. And it goes on from there to describe that. And then the second part of that, what you might call the bad news, the harder news, we believe that the souls of unbelievers, that is those who have not trusted Christ as savior, they've rejected, maybe they've just said, well, I just don't believe it. Okay, the souls of unbelievers remain after death in conscious misery. Wow, there's more in our church doctrinal statement and more that we'll take right out of Scripture today. I I want you to see we didn't make that up. It's not like the church said, well, let's come up with some some scary stuff. No, no, no. You read the Bible and you see the the gravity, the importance of trusting Christ as our Savior from sin and uh, the, the penalty of those who don't. Just say, I don't want to be in the presence of God. And God says, okay, well, I guess you don't have to be. And off they go. So, so not, not really um, something to ignore and not something to play lightly with. 
But that's kind of a backdrop to us. Um, living with the eternal state. A couple comments here, and then I'm going to pray for us, and we'll step into the text, okay? But I've given you a number of quotations from people here I, into this setting, living with the eternal state in view, okay? I just gave you some quotes, Jonathan Edwards, uh, D.L. Moody, and so on. And I, I'm just going to read the first line from C.S. Lewis. As, as, all of this, just introductory to where we're going. Lewis says, I, sh- I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. And of course, he goes on from there. Why does he need to keep it alive? May I suggest it's because Lewis discovered, as we do too, that with the busyness of life, how quickly we we lose perspective and we forget. And we begin to think that life is here, that this is all there is. And we forget about the life that is to come. So Lewis says, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country. And I, I hope that today accomplishes that to some degree for us. I also hope that all of us today as we'll conclude in in a bit, um, we'll be faced with the two destinies, what I've called two choices, two destinies. The importance of you knowing where you stand with Christ. I I hope that you hear that today and think about it, please, deeply. Where do you stand with Christ today? So I want to pray and we will step into our text here. All right. Our Father, we take great delight in opening the scriptures together. Uh, The inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God is our guide uh, for life, for faith, and for for how we look ahead to to things yet to come. And we ask together, our Father, that you would help us to hear and to respond in faith, to believe what's here written, and then to live our lives, to order our lives uh, as lined up with what you've said is true. So help us with this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you're now on the second side of your sermon notes, all right? That was pretty quick. It'll slow down from here, let me tell you. So two big headings. Um, I called the first eternity, one minute after you die, with thank you to Erwin Lutzer. Why did I say it that way? Well, because Erwin Lutzer, of course, the pastor for many years at Moody Church in Chicago, he wrote a book. That's why I put quotes around that. It's called One Minute After You Die, where he looks at some of these same things, so I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to think here with you, oh, really, eternal state, the life everlasting, that title taken from the last line of the Apostles' Creed, but I'm, 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 I'm wanting to focus here on, on eternity in the presence of God, and then as we'll see in a moment, what it looks like a bit for eternity not in the presence of God. That's, a, that's an important part of this conversation too. But what I want to do then is I'm going to read this first uh, group of texts to get us started. I'm going to mention some books that if you'd like to, to, to study a bit further on these topics, then we'll look at these six statements of, of what heaven is like. Okay? So let's read God's word then. I'm going to start with Revelation 21, uh, 1 through 8, and then read those other portions so noted here on your sermon notes. Let's hear the word of God then about what is true and right. So the Apostle John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven 
or from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy, faithful. In other words, they're faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithful, faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portions shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death." Now begins a description of this glorious city, this place of beauty coming down out of heaven from God. I'm going to move to verse 22 as John continues. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, and nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then into chapter 22. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night, darkness, will be no more. There'll be no need of, uh, they'll need no light or lamp of sun or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And off we go. Wow. Wow. Now, Before I step into my six categories there, I I want to, as I often do, uh, some of you like to study and go deeper on all these things, so just a few resources. All summer I have mentioned to you, if you like a one-stop shop on theology, Millard Erickson is a good choice for that. It's amazingly called Christian Theology, uh, 1,200 and some pages, and I've referenced it several times throughout the summer as a good resource. There is a section here, it's understandably the last one, called The Last Things, and chapter 59 is about our topic today. So, the final things. And so he talks about the final state of the righteous, again, those who know Christ as Savior, the final state of the wicked, that is, those who've rejected Christ, 
and implications of that. So that's kind of like the last chapter of the book. So uh, one person in our congregation found this uh, book for $15 at a used bookstore online, which is a pretty good deal, may I say, for a, a book like that. Now, some of you have read this book from Randy Elkhorn, amazingly, as well, called Heaven. And it's a big discussion. It's probably the, the biggest uh, treatment of that topic, uh, I, I, I guess. Um, he does a relatively good job of, of pointing out things that might be or it looks like as opposed to the things the Bible says for sure. Every now, every now and then I wish he'd say perhaps uh, because you, you can say, I, man, you were pretty sure on that and I'm not sure that's in the Bible, but, but thank you. So this is a good book and you find it very interesting to read. If you ask questions like what's heaven like? Well, there you go. Listen to this sermon or you can read a whole book. Uh, some of you as well might enjoy this from Lee Strobel, the case for heaven, you know, case for faith, case for Christ, and so on, case for creation, same guy, um, where he visits various doctors and so on who talk about um, evidences from medicine of the afterlife. Uh, some of you would like this more, some of you would like it less. That's okay. Um, Lee Strobel, there's good. I uh, wanted to mention this other guy, Gary Habermas, this book called The Risen Jesus and future hope. I, I mentioned this because uh, Dr. Habermas was a, this is back in the 90s, he's still a professor I think today, um, last I heard. He, he was a college professor, seminary prof, things like that, r- you know, teaching routinely what God is like and uh, teaching students. And well, in the midst of that, um, his young wife, four kids at home, uh, got real sick. And four months later, she died. Wow, didn't see it coming. And what's a young theologian to do with four children at home? And how do you deal with all the doubts that come from this? As one who teaches on resurrection and eternal life and hope and God, what do you do about that? He wrote this book at the time. It's a memoir of that uh, season of loss in his life. It's called Forever Loved, A Personal Account of Grief and Resurrection. So what do you do with that? Anyway, he's a, he's a good theologian, continues to uh, write after that. So, um, Gary Habermas, I'll be putting these books out here at the end of service today. You can take a picture, but just don't take my books. So, this one as well is, is, is fun. I keep this on my desk because I like the title. It says, the title is We Shall See God. It's a devotional book. It's got 50 excerpts from Spurgeon's sermons about heaven. These are collected by Randy Alcorn, who edited and figured it all out. But if you like to think about this, for a longer period of time. So, we shall see God. Yeah, usually this is sitting on the left side of my desk because I never want to forget that the end, that, that is the end of all of this when all is said and done. We shall see God. Okay, with that, I, did I just go away? Okay, I'm here. For a moment, I thought I was gone. But... Six statements I want to make about heaven, and you'll keep your Bible open because these are right here in front of you. So I look at Revelation 21, and John, the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, you'll notice the words he says, I saw. Verse 2, I saw. Um, I heard a loud voice. And if you look through the text, those kinds of words show up a lot. The angel showed me. uh, Verse 22, I saw. I saw this. I saw the water of life. 
and, and, and God himself, I, we, they will see him. I'm pointing out here, statement number one, every indication in scripture is that heaven is a real place. You see, you hear. All those words are used about the presence of God. So please get this. Statement number one, heaven is a real place. Every bit is real, maybe more so than what you experience right now. It is a real place. It's not a, like an ethereal, phantom, ghost-like place with ooey-gooey music where you go, ooh, let's get out of here. It's not a creepy place. No, a very real place. There's every, everything in the Bible about this is that heaven is a real place. We studied Jesus' resurrection body several weeks ago when we talked about resurrection. And we saw that Jesus' body, I call it here a physical slash spiritual body. Some would call it a physio-spiritual body. All these terms show up in theological literature. But we, and we looked at this as well. When Christ was raised from the dead, this is an indication of what will be like when we are raised from the dead. Okay? So Jesus' body in his resurrection existence was, was pretty cool, like could move through buildings and walls and things, and yet it could be touched. You remember Jesus saying, touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And you remember, I think it's in Luke's gospel, he ate, he ate in their presence. So, so a physical existence, yes, but something different. So physical, real, and, and I'm just pointing out the reality of this place that would fit a resurrection body like that of Christ and like what I believe ours will be. Heaven is a real place. So let that be the backdrop to all of this. Uh, perhaps 1 Corinthians 13 would be some suggestion of this, where Paul says, though now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So, so here is dimly. Here we see through a mirror darkly. We don't see clearly. Certainly we don't see heaven clearly. But then, then we will see face to face. Heaven is a real place. Second, Heaven is heaven because God is there. Don't rush too quickly over this, okay? Look at my statements here. It's not about ponies, hot fudge, Sundays, fishing, or golf. We often talk about he's gone fishing. He's gone to the great golf course in the sky. Uh, some have said, well, golfing in heaven wouldn't be that much fun because everybody would get a hole in one every time. Uh, I'm not so sure on that. Randy Alcorn uh, offers some conjecture on such things, and I'll, I'll leave that completely alone. But, but I, I want you to get this. The core of heaven, its description is, is God is there. God himself will be with them. You see, this is verse 3. It's right there in the text. God himself will be with them. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They himself will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God in chapter 22, verse 4, as we read that as well. They will see his face that close to to the immediate presence of God. Now, this is not something to be rushed over. I, I hear sometimes people in such a hurry to go check in with grandma or somebody else that they loved who died in faith and is with the Lord to say, well, I'm going to, you know, I'll stop and say hi to Jesus. And then like, whoa, you're going to stop and say hi to Jesus? Like off you go to really seeing the cool stuff. Well, no, 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 no. When you, when you step into the presence of God in the place the Bible calls heaven, this is the main event. Uh, I don't doubt the other conversations, not for a minute. But, but the presence of God, God himself will be with them. Now, I mentioned here, this, this is a major biblical theme running deep in Old Testament scriptures all the way through. 
And I, I just want to I want to remind you of a couple things here so that you see the, the importance of this and the joy that it involves, okay? The beginning, Genesis 1, God creates the heaven and the earth, creates this beautiful place, beautiful garden, places Adam and Eve in the garden. Where's God? Well, with them, they enjoy the immediate presence of God. They're going to walk with God in the cool of the evening. Now, Genesis 3, of course, that is broken because sin enters, and that immediate enjoyment of the presence of God broken. If you skip all the way ahead, and don't worry, I'm going to come back to that moment in a minute. In Revelation 21 and 22, you have God again with them. You find a garden at the beginning, you find a garden at the end. You find a tree at the beginning, you find a tree at the end. So it's like a recapitulation, I think, of, of, of Eden, except in much more glory in the eternal state. Now, if you go back to the first part, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, Penta 5, the, the first part of the Bible, you find that the, the, the idea God himself will be among them. God says, I will dwell in the midst of them. He says it over and over again. I've redeemed you from the land of Egypt. And, and I'll be among you as, as, as your God. You'll be my people. I give you a text here for your study. Exodus 29, 45, and 46 is an example of this. There are many others. God says, I'll dwell in the midst of you. That was God's intent for his people. I'll dwell among you. Now, the, the presence of God, of course, showed up in glory in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, was prepared as a place for the worship of God. The presence of God came glory uh, displayed there in the temple or the tabernacle. Um, God was, was, was there. Now, the presence of God and its immediacy came and went with sin. You'll remember, I gave you Exodus 33. This is that moment when after the golden calf, if you're remembering your Bible history, if you haven't read this part yet, you should. Really exciting stuff. Well, there was sin in the camp, and there's a moment where God says, you're heading to the promised land, and I'll hang out with you, but I'm not going to be in the midst of you. And Moses goes, time out, Stop. If your presence doesn't go with us, I don't want to go. That's Exodus 33. Your presence must go with us. And God eventually says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But the presence of God, the presence of God. Um, of course, you find um, as we get to Ezekiel, I'm taking you toward Ezekiel 48. There, there's a moment in there where, oh goodness sakes, you remember uh, when, the, when the, the, the Ark of the Covenant is taken, Ikavod, the glory has departed and so this, this theme of the presence of God, the, the nearness of God, comes and goes all the way through the Old Testament. Ezekiel 48, a cool book. You find a river there too, flowing ever deeper from the throne. Very revelation-like. But in, 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 in uh, Ezekiel 40 to 48 is a description. Some would call it the millennial temple. Okay, So measurements, ad infinitum. Uh, it's tough to do as your devotions because you read, okay, I'm going to read Ezekiel 44. And it just tells you how big the walls are. You go, well, that was spiritually edifying, I guess. Read the whole chunk at once, I would suggest. But the last verse is the capstone. We're just talking about the beauty of this city, so described, this temple described there. And at the very end, it says the name of the city will be called, what is it? The Lord is there. The Lord is there. The presence of God with his people. And of course, you can study this, as we'll see when we start studying the Gospel of Mark on the 24th of this month. We'll be working our way all the way through that book, the next ministry year. When you study Jesus, Jesus tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, John says. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, so the dwelling of God with his people is an incredible theme. You study it all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And I'm saying in our text, 
this is the, like the capstone of heaven. God is there. His presence, we sing his presence, my light, and we are right to sing it. I'm going to move to the next, okay? Um, more of these. We could spend much more time on all this. Heaven is the place of ultimate rest. Sometimes we say it that way, so-and-so entered rest, and we give a date. We mean they died. But, but Scripture is so much more robust in its, in its thinking than this, okay? I mean here, as you see, not a hammock in the sky, but true shalom. Uh, this is one of those cool Hebrew words that has a, a meaning well beyond what we often give it. People say shalom, meaning, oh, peace or greetings or something. No, no, no. Uh, the Hebrew word is, is much stronger than this. Wholeness, wellness, uh, the ultimate, it is well with my soul. It, it speaks of goodness and rest and true joy, absence of conflict. Uh, all of those things are described. And I see this in Revelation 21.4 as we read this. This is shalom. This is ultimate rest. I want to press into this with you because, listen, uh, God has wired your heart for this. You may not even know that you long for this, but you do. It's your deepest longing. This is what I'm now describing. It's, you, you, you may not even recognize it, but as I describe it, I think you will. This is everyone's longing, I promise. So, so in Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be, uh, d- d- death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. I think those are, those are a, a descriptor of the final phrase, for the former things have passed away. That, that former, whatever those former things are that bring difficulty and loss and tears and stress, those things will all have passed away. Now, lest we think of ultimate rest as, like I say, a hammock in the sky with angelic messengers just continually refilling your lemonade, uh, which I don't think is the point, I, I would want to describe it like this, okay? In, in every one of our brains, there's kind of like a backstory being it's just like a voice. I'm not saying you're hearing voices. I'm just saying there, there are things in the back of your brain all the time, things like, I wonder if we'll run out of money, hope everybody's well. Um, um, are the kids okay? What about the grandkids? Am I going to lose my job? What happens if I get sick and die? What if so-and-so gets sick and die and dies? What about them? What about them? Fear of loss. The weather, oh my goodness sakes, the car is going to run out of gas. It's going to get a flat tire. It's that thing that talks about danger and concerns. Okay? Sometimes it's really loud because there's an immediate threat. There's health needs or loss in a family, or issues of relationship, and that voice gets really loud. What if that voice was completely silent? Not because it just kind of disappeared for the day, but because all those things were resolved. Can you imagine a moment with zero threats at all, now or in the future? Probably not, because it's never a moment of our existence. But, but for this moment, as heaven would be described, a place of rest, the best I could give you for when you have it is this. You know that moment, um, rarely maybe, but when, you're, when you sort of, you're in the process of waking up and you're saying, you wake up you sort of and you're saying, what day is it? What's my name? Do I have to do anything today? You know what I'm talking about? And then it hits you. Oh, that's right. It's Monday, or whatever day it is, and this, and this, and this, and this. But, but I'm talking about that moment before that, when you don't even know your name. <laughs> it's a place of peace. It's your happy place. You, you know, I don't want to get up. 
I'm trying my best to describe heaven as a place of rest. In, in that, that happy spot, yeah, then you, you go, oh, that's right, I've got to get up, I've got responsibilities, this to do this, I've got to go to work, laundry to do kids. Yes, I know. But, if, but if, if, if instead your existence was that peaceful, I don't have to worry about a thing. There are no threats. Zero. No more death. No more sickness ever again. No relational stresses anywhere. Everything is whole. And by the way, it'll continue this way. I don't have to worry about the future. I don't have to worry about running out of money. The dog's fine. Well, that's another topic. Things are well. Truly, it is well with my soul. That's what I'm trying to capture here. Now, this theme of he will wipe away every tear from their eyes is repeated in Scripture. It's here. You'll find it in Revelation 7 in a different context. And um, I've given you a text here from Isaiah 25, and I want to go there. Okay? So you, you, you don't have to come with me if you would prefer to stay right here in Revelation. But I'm going to go back to, to Isaiah 25 because I want you to see that what's described in Revelation is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So this has been coming for a while. I think it's a, a fulfillment of the picture of what God created in, 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 in Genesis, in Eden. But here in Isaiah 25, it's looking ahead to things that are, bringing, are being brought to fulfillment, culminated in Revelation 21 and 22. So in, in Isaiah 25, this is a text that we looked at in, with Blue Christmas some years ago. Blue Christmas is a, a Christmas time that we, a, a service that we do for those who are grieving. And it's usually quieter. We do it in conjunction with our grief share ministry, but we do it here in this place. And usually a few dozen people come and it's live streamed. And it's, it's, it's thinking about God's care for us in, in a time of loss. And this was a text we looked at a couple years ago, and it has stayed with me uh, ever since. So, so Revel, or sorry, Isaiah 25, starting verse 6, this paragraph, on this mountain, I think this is the mountain of the Lord, I take it as Jerusalem in a future time, Mount Zion, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, and this is, this is peoples of faith who've all survived uh, earth and life, and they're coming to God's presence, he will provide for them a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And if you don't think that sounds all that good, just picture that verse is trying to describe the best of the best. Okay? It's the best of the best. This is what God will provide. And keep going. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering. There's repetition here. The covering that's cast over all people. The veil. Some of your versions will say the Paul, P-A-L-L. The Paul that is, that is spread over all the nations. What is that? Well, it's death. The next line. He will swallow up death forever. Love that line. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. No more reproach, maybe on you or others. The reproach of his people. How do you know this is true? Is this just pie in the sky? How do you know? How do you know that that's going to happen? It's because of the next line. The Lord has spoken. God said it. He'll do it. You don't need a signed document. You don't need some legal thing. How do you know it's going to happen? The Lord has said it. End of story. He'll do it. 
Next line, verse nine. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is ultimate salvation. We speak of salvation past, present, and future. This is the end of that, the ultimate, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Can you imagine the joy of that moment? Ultimate rest in his presence. It is done, Revelation 21, as we read. It is done. It is done. Wow. We are whole. Struggle ended. Separation and loss done. I am finally whole. You are finally whole. Broken things are no more. Oh, man. Can you imagine? I want to go now. Well, you know. Heaven was a place of ultimate rest. Next. Heaven, I'm going back to, the, back to your sermon notes. Next line. Heaven will reveal what is truly valuable. What people value the most in this life will be seen for what it is. False values all around us, things that we, we live our lives laboring for. Cooler stuff, bigger stuff, better stuff, newer stuff, more stuff. Did I miss anything? Someday we'll see it for what it is. What people value the most in this life will be seen for what it is. No one will be digging up the streets of gold I'm seeing. Or what's my point of this? The Bible talks about streets of, you know, made of gold, streets of gold that glitter, gates of pearly white. Okay, glory, beauty, honor, all of that, opulence in a, in a great heavenly sense, sure. May I point out, though, book of Revelation, if you can have streets of gold, you know, what would happen if you had a street of gold in Seattle? It'd gone. It'd be hacked up overnight. You had people out there with the axes, and you know, it wouldn't last. How come? People kill for this stuff. People die for gold. Yeah, yeah, my goodness, are you chopping this thing up? Heaven, nobody's chopping up the streets. Nobody's killing for it. Be like today, if I ran out and went, look, I've got a piece of blacktop. You would wonder about me, wouldn't you? Wow, he's got a cool piece of cement. Yes, you do, big boy. Wow. You'd think, well, ah, it doesn't get out much or something. Well, similar, heaven, nobody's chopping up the streets of gold. That's not the focus. You walk on it. Wow. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, I gave you this reference for your further study, but I'll tell you what it's about. This is where the Apostle Paul is talking about eternal values. And he's talking about building our lives on the foundation of Christ. And he says you can build with gold, silver, or precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. Remember this? Those are your choices. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. And he says there, the day will show it. It'll be tried by fire. So what things, what things survive the fire, so to speak? Well, gold, silver, and precious stones, those who've built well on the foundation of Christ. Wood, hay, and stubble, things that you think matter here, but sure don't matter there. Okay, that's wood, hay, and stubble. And you want to make sure that you build your life with gold, silver, and precious stones, things that will matter in heaven, not the stuff that just matters here, and then who cares? That's the point of 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, Next, heaven will be a place of healing between people and nations and a place of celebrating the glory of God in the redeemed cultures of the world. How interesting. So I I look here with you. Your Bibles are still open. So so in in Revelation 22, it's very interesting in verse 2, it says, as we read it, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. What is this? How can the leaves of a tree heal the nations? Well, the how is not explained. 
but the healing of the nations is. And further, back in chapter 21, you might have noticed as we read this, uh, in verse 24, by its light, that is the light of the glory of God, uh, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And again, in verse 26, they'll bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Over and over again in the, in the book of Revelation, you find God's people in his presence is described as men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is the conclusion, the ultimate conclusion of the Great Commission. People from, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation in his presence and the glory of the nations, the redeemed glory of the nations. Yes, I know there are things in different cultures that, that are not okay. There's also glory in every culture. There is. In fact, Don Richardson, great missiologist of a generation ago, if you've ever read his book, Peace Child or um, uh, Eternity in Their Hearts, uh, he would describe from his experience as a missionary, I think, um, yeah, someplace, Indonesia or, or Papua New Guinea, I'm not sure, can't remember, but, but, but he would describe his belief that in every, lang- in every culture, there is a redemptive analogy, he would call it, some key that will unlock the gospel. That was the point of peace child. One warring tribe giving a child to the next at great cost to themselves, knowing that now there'll be peace between the two because you're not going to attack your own flesh and blood. And he says, do you see Jesus here? God sent his son to, to, to bring peace to two warring parties, us warring against him. God sent his son to be our peace child. That, that's, that's the point of the book, Peace Child. Wonderful book. Well, here, though, into this wonderful kingdom, the glory and honor of the nations. I mentioned before in years gone by, other times preaching. Some years ago, I had a chance to visit our global partners in India. And um, it's probably 10 years ago. And to be part of a, of a, a sizable conference, a couple thousand people. They're attended by, by 60 different nationalities from that area. India up into uh, some other countries, neighboring. 60 different cultures and part of every worship service. They did a lot. Uh, they were long, 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 none of this hour and out of here stuff. Um, but but each, each of these cultural groups in their, in their native finery would sing and dance as part of the worship service. And then another group would come. And if you picture India and its colors, oranges and yellows, and all, there's all the beauty of native dress. I didn't understand a word of it, but I did. All of it was sung to the praise of God. And it was glorious, one group after the other. And, 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 and boy, to get ready to preach after that, oh man. Yeah, the beauty of the worship. Sometimes the, you know, if you were strictly keeping track of music, you might say, I think they're a little flat. You know who cared? Yeah, nobody. They weren't singing to you. They had a different audience in mind. Who doesn't really care if the music's a little, little flat? All of it sung to the glory of God. So I, I picture that here. Into this place, the nations will walk. The kings of the earth bring their glory into it. The glory and honor of nations, yes. Healing between people and nations. Groups here that don't like to talk to each other. Ethnicities, language groups, cultural things. People throw words back and forth. Divisions, long, long feuds. The Hatfields and McCoys and worse. Heaven is a place of that rich diversity, yet whole. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? The redeemed cultures of the world. Uh, Sixth, heaven is an active place. 
It's a real place. God is there. It's rest. It's valuable. Uh, We see what's valuable. Healing, active. I'm saying not a humdrum existence with cloud sitting and harps. Um, if you've seen the, the, you know, the cartoons of people floating around in some kind of weird spacey thing, wearing white robes and, and um, playing harps, a lot of people look at those kinds of pictures and say, I don't know if I want to go there. That doesn't sound like fun. One person said, as I read, um, if heaven is like going to Sunday school every day forever, I don't know if I want to do that either. Now, they've never been to our Sunday school because we, we rock it and all that, but... But people get this idea. No, actually, in the Bible, as we read here a moment ago, interesting, verse, verse 5 of t- chapter 22, it says they'll reign forever and ever. What does that mean? Will reign forever and ever? Wow. Huh. Uh, verse 3, his servants will worship him. I referenced as I, as I read that. Some translations say serve or worship. Exactly. And then I gave you this kind of an odd text, 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Odd, because it's the only place in the Bible where this thought is mentioned. It says in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 3, Paul says, Do you not know we will judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? And it's like, wait, 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 back it up. We will judge angels? When are we going to do that? By what standard? How long will that take? Oh, we're doing that? Well, Paul's saying it to the Christians. Don't you know we shall judge angels? Don't you think you could figure out how to get along, y'all? We're going to judge angels someday. That's the only place in the Bible. That's it. Well, I guess we're going to do some stuff and sit around on a cloud with a harp. Adventure, beauty, glory. Think of all of those things. Okay, two choices, two destinies. Very quickly, that first part was the bulk of what I want to say. But I want to read Revelation 20, 11 to 15. We've already read 21, 8. But I want to read 20, 11 to 15. This is a sobering view. Uh, you would not want to see this played out. You would not want to watch it on TV. This is the judgment for those who have rejected Jesus Christ. It will be attended by all who have rejected Jesus Christ, including those who say, yeah, but I just don't believe that stuff. Well, they will that day. They will that day. So we read chapter 20. Verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, from whose presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. In other words, there's no place to hide. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So the books and book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books. I take that to mean a record of their behavior, their deeds. Uh, Are there indications in the Bible of different levels of punishment in hell? I think there are indications. I wouldn't go to the wall for that, but that's the way I understand the texts. Uh, I I see indication of this, and maybe here. They're judged according to what they have done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then... Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And here's the bottom line. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. A sobering scene indeed. Book of life. How do you get your name written in the book of life? Listen carefully. Trust Christ as your savior from sin believing that you're a sinner before a holy God and that Christ alone paid the price for you. 
you're going to trust Christ in him alone. Not 95% Jesus and 5% your coolness, because you don't have that much. 5% is way overrated. No, it's 100% Christ. Trusting Christ in him alone as your savior from sin. Your name written in the Lamb's book of life for all eternity. You won't be at this judgment if that's you. All who have said no to Jesus, as the Bible records over and over again here in particular, all of them will show up that day and be held accountable by God for having rejected his son. Wow. Now, I have here on your sermon notes, my goodness, two choices, two destinies. Trusting Christ, not trusting Christ, those are the two choices, the two destinies. Eternity in the presence of God is Revelation 21 and 22, or this great white throne judgment, that's the other destiny. And I want to go to to one other text, and I'll let you read the other elements that are here. Uh, There's more that I would love to have you read, and I I give you that so that you will. But I, I want to just read briefly a part of this text from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, because these two destinies are held in very stark contrast here as well. Um, And again, we're limiting ourselves by time to just a certain number of texts. There are more. 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 3, begins with this wonderful, effusive, um, uh, speaking of honor and the work of God on behalf of the church in Thessalonica. But then you come, and I want you to watch this. In verse, verse 6, okay, he says this, Since indeed God considers it just, that's it justice, considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now watch this. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. He's drawing two different choices and the consequences of them. And he's very clear on a punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That's one destiny. And the other, those who've trusted Christ as their Savior from sin, who see the presence of God and marvel at him, verse 10. They marvel at him. That's part of what you'll do, I think, for all eternity. Two choices, two destinies. Jesus describes the two paths in Matthew. The apostles that he preached over and over again, they said this. They said, repent. Change your mind. Change your heart. Change your posture toward the God of the Bible. Repent. Turn to Christ in faith, acknowledging your sinfulness before him, your need of a savior. That's what the apostles preached, and we do too. Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, I'm gonna say a couple more things in in a moment here. I'm gonna pray for us, and we're gonna respond. This is our chance to respond by receiving communion for those of us who know Christ, saying, thank you, Lord, Thank you for a savior. Thank you that I do not have to face eternity on my merit because I don't have much. Thank you for a savior. Thank you for a savior. His precious blood, as we sang earlier, shed on the cross for our sins, his body broken for us. I'm gonna pray. I'll say more about that, uh, what what communion is all about in a couple of moments. Keep your sermon notes near you. 
uh, if you would please. But may I pray for us here? Father, I thank you so much for, for telling us these things about what it's like in the final state when all is said and done. We would not know otherwise if you had not told us. All we would have is our best guesses. It seems to me, and that's not worth much. Thank you for giving us the definitive, authoritative scripture that tells us what is and what is not. So, Father, here, thank you for telling us the glory of heaven. I pray that you would, you would, you would press its value on our hearts. We would say, and I want to be there. I want to be there. I want to be there. All of that because of Jesus. Thank you that we can remember him now in his death, burial, and resurrection. Help us now to worship you well. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if you know Christ as your Savior, we welcome you to share with us in receiving communion. Communion, of course, is a remembering of the story. It's a remembering of the story of Jesus. Two little elements in traditional communion. Communion is celebrated differently around the world in different times and generations. But, but commonalities would be some kind of a piece of bread or cracker. All this looking back to the Last Supper where Jesus said, this, this bread is my body broken for you. And the little cup of juice that points us to the blood of Christ shed for us. Jesus shed his blood on the cross to pay for all of our sin. The book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Our sin required a death penalty before a holy God. Jesus paid it all. See, And we're invited into that story by trusting Christ. So in taking those two elements, our hearts respond in gratitude, saying, Lord Jesus, thank you that your body was broken for me and your blood shed for me. My trust is here, Christ, him alone. So the way we receive those elements, uh, we have tables over here and down here. I'll invite those of you in the middle sections to come down the middle aisle and take those two elements, take them back to your seat, and, and, and just hold on to them. I'll say a few words, uh, and then we'll take those together. You on the sides, you can come up by the windows and be served on the side aisles and, and back uh, down those aisles to your seat. And we'll just wait and listen to some glorious music. And then you're, you'll be seated, and uh, I'll say just a couple of things. And together, we'll remember the body of Christ and his blood shed for us. If someone is near you who's mobility challenged or would appreciate being served for some other reason, I'd invite you to pay, pay attention to whoever's around you and care for them this way as well. Serve a family member if you wish. But please come, and let's remember Christ together. Yes. remember that as Jesus' words at the Last Supper are communicated through the Gospels and, and into 1 Corinthians, one of the things that Jesus says is, um, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a looking ahead to the return of Christ. There's a remembering his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. I want to read um, two verses of a song that some of you probably were raised singing. Others of you maybe have never heard it before. It's okay. We're still friends. But it's, it's speaking about what we've talked about today. Uh, this is the song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. It's envisioning somebody taking roll at heaven's shore. 
So the first two verses, hear them. The writer says, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. And the morning breaks, eternal, bright, and fair. When the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore. And the roll is called up yonder. What is it? I'll be there. Verse 2. On that bright and cloudless morning, when the dead in Christ shall rise, and the glory of his resurrection share, when his chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the skies, and the roll is called up yonder. What is it? I'll be there. Will you be there? Will you be there? Second question. If you will, why? Why will you be there? Is it because you're so amazing? You're so smart. You're so gifted. You've done really, really well. Is that it? Any righteousness of your own? No, 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 and no. If you will be there, and I hope you will, everyone, it will be because Christ and Christ alone paid for your sin, and you believed it. You received that gift from him. Christ in him alone. Christ in him alone. This little cracker points us to his body broken for us. And we say thank you, Lord. And likewise, the little cup of juice points us to his blood shed for us. And we say thank you, Lord, as well. It's my hope as you leave that as you head into this week and pick up again whatever burdens you set down to come here today, that you will pick up those things again with eternity's values in view and walk into this week saying, Lord, I thank you. I thank you. I'd like to pray for us. Would you stand with me, please, as we head out? Our Father, how good it is to have spent time together with worship and singing and worship and praying and worshiping in your word, hearing, responding in faith. Thank you for the morning. Encourage us as we go from here. You know the things that each of us must deal with in the coming days. You know it even better than we do. Would you help us? Would you help us? Encourage us. We honor you today as our King, our Savior, and our friend. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.